as technology evolves, you often get co-evolution of practice. Some of those practices are context specific to an industry, but some of them are universally useful. Now, the success of an organization, often people think, oh, it's about technology. It's actually about the principles. I mean, if you took all the technology away from Amazon and gave it to somebody else, give Amazon 10 to 15 years, they'd be back in the same position they are because they have a a really good set of principles. This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Bandless Conversations podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. These conversations help us make sense of what's coming next with platform business models, the dynamics of marketplaces, business ecosystems, and much more. Join me, my regular co-host Sina Heikila, and other guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. Worldly mapping is a method used to help generate a shared understanding of strategic landscapes and their evolution. From all levels, from individual businesses, industries, to nation states and even culture, it can be applied to pretty much anything. And as our adopters know well, worldly maps are a key feature of platform strategy design. And the person who invented these maps is joining us in the podcast today, Simon Wardley. Simon Wardley is a former CEO and advisory board member of startups, all now acquired by the US giants, and a fellow of Open Europe. Simon is a regular conference speaker and a researcher for the Leading Edge Forum. He uses mapping in his research at the Leading Edge Forum, covering areas from serverless to nation-state competition, while also advising and teaching clients on mapping, strategy, organization, and leadership. For this episode, we strongly suggest that you check out the show notes ahead of or while listening to the episode. We're referring to the Wardley's Doctrine table that is linked in the show notes quite a lot. Go to stories.platformdesigntoolkit.com to find it. You'll hear about why the economy should start learning from China, why tech should go serverless, why businesses should focus on doctrine, and what Simon means when he says society should have that me versus we conversation. You'll probably find that this episode is worth listening to a few times to get the depth and breadth of the conversation. But before we jump in, we'd like to ask you to go to your favorite podcast platform and rate the show. In our ethos to keep all our knowledge open, we want to spread ideas as widely as possible, and high ratings help us secure important guests. Thank you so much for your help. Here we go with mapping legend Simon Wardley. Hello, everyone. So we are back uh, at the Boundless Conversation podcast. I'm here today with uh, my usual co-host, Justina. Hello, I'm very excited to be here. And today we have, uh, you know, we, we seem to have lots of legends coming on our podcast. And today I cannot really contain my enthusiasm uh, for having with us today Simon Wardley. Hello. Uh, well, uh, can I just say it's an absolute delight to be here. Thank you, both of you, for inviting me to this. It has been ages since we've spoken. So, so thank you. Thanks, Simon. I'm really looking forward to expose uh, more people to your work that has been uh, so foundational to, I must say, to most of the things I've been doing in the last decade, including Platform Design Toolkit and uh, Entrepreneurial Ecosystem Enabling Organization. So I'm really looking forward to dive deeper into your latest insights. Uh, so uh, first of all, I mean, let's start maybe from from an overview no, of some of your thinking. And, and I was excited to read the recently a tweet. Uh, you know, your tweets are, are uh, you know, le- legendary, I would say. But uh, this one was really, really uh, synthetic and, and really powerful. You know, when you mentioned four layers, I would say, of uh, the, the conversation, you mentioned society, economy, business and technology. And you said, you know, on society, we need to have this we versus me discussion. On the economy, we need to start learning from China. On business, we need to focus on doctrine. And on technology, we need to go serverless. So maybe you can double-click on these four topics, four layers, quickly as an introduction to your latest thinking for our for our listeners. And I'm sure we can build on top of that. Sure. Absolute pleasure. Um, fundamental to all of this is, is the concept of mapping. It's quite important to understand uh, the landscape uh, that you exist within before you uh, make choices. It's important to use it as a mechanism of uh, communicating your assumptions uh, to challenging each other and the assumptions that we make. A lot of the world 
in those sorts of layers use stories. And I'm, I'm quite well known for um, being somewhat harsh about stories. And the problem with stories is they are connected to storytellers. So inevitably, they are highly political instruments. So when you, uh, you challenge a story, you're actually challenging uh, the person, which is why you, you convert this stuff to, to maps where possible. Because now we can have a conversation, and when I'm challenging, I'm challenging the map, uh, not the person. So, mapping out a landscape, um, this is all. These are all maps of capital, and it doesn't matter whether we're talking just about things uh, and activities that we do, or practices, or data, or knowledge, or even ethical values. I mean, they're all forms of capital that can be mapped. So they all have the same sort of common properties in terms of they evolve through different stages. And so, when you look at the tech landscape. If you start mapping what's going on in the tech landscape, of course, we're focused on often lower end systems like infrastructure uh, and those have uh, evolved uh, and uh, become more utility like. So the basic stages of evolution its four stage process is genesis, custom built products and commodity utility. Uh, and those are just labels for those different stages. If you're talking about practices, it's novel, emerging, good and best. Uh, data starts as unmodeled, divergent, convergent, then modeled. Um, so if you start mapping out technology, you see a lot of things are industrializing. And as they industrialize, we move up the stack. And um, that has two impacts. A, first, we get something called the co-evolution of practice. So when we think about things like computing, how it went from servers to to utility with cloud, we got things like DevOps, and that became the the new practice compared to the old uh, architectural practice. And so that continues to evolve. And then if you go above that layer, you, you, above infrastructure, above operating system, you have things like the runtime. And the runtime itself is shifting from our product uh, stacks like uh, LAMP and .NET to more utility forms, uh, including things like Lambda. And so the reason why I say go serverless is, you know, when you map out, you map from the user and the user needs and what they require. And obviously, you want to put your effort and resources as close to the user as possible. And so nowadays, with the runtime becoming a utility, uh, which is the whole serverless space, that's where you want to be focused. I mean, it's a bit like, um, you know, when you focus on on building a car, you think about the user and their interaction with the car. You don't put all your effort focusing in terms of nuts and bolts. Uh, those are just lower order systems. So, so the first thing, tech go serverless, is because you know that's what's currently industrializing, becoming more of a utility. That's where you should be. Uh, Ten years ago, of course, infrastructure as a service, uh, what we call cloud, was you know where you wanted to be. Um, but but now you, you need to be thinking further up the stack. Uh, business, focus on doctrine. One of the things you learn from uh, maps uh, are there are various forms of patterns. Some of them are very context-specific, so it depends upon how evolved something is. And so classic example of this is if you think about project management, then for the novel and new, you use something like uh, lightweight, extreme programming, agile. Um, when it's more late custom product development, you use different methods uh, like uh, Scrum, MVP, what you would call Lean. And when it becomes more commodity, you would use things like Six Sigma. And the reason for that is the characteristics of the thing has changed. So it's gone from a world where deviation is desirable, i.e. change is constant, to a world where you want to minimize deviation. And that's why you need polar opposite methods. Now, that leads to something called um, one size doesn't fit all. And that turns out to be a universally useful pattern. So while the methods are context specific, the pattern of one size doesn't fit all turns out to be universally useful. It doesn't matter whether I'm talking about project management or purchasing methods or, or finance. Uh, you need to use multiple techniques depending upon how evolved something is. So creating something novel and new is different from uh, managing a utility. Well, there's about 40 uh, different forms of doctrine. 
And, um, well, there's more than 40, uh, but in that table, there's a list of 40. And I organized them into basic phases of how you would go around doing this. And the, the sort of phase one things are you know, pretty simple. Understand your users. Turns out that's uh, fairly uh, uh, universally useful. Uh, understand the chain of components. Um, so understand the details. On, I, when you're building something, understand what's involved. Um, understanding how evolved that thing is. So um, understand what is being considered. There's a world of difference uh, uh, between managing something custom-built and something which is more of a commodity. Uh, challenge assumptions, it turns out to be universally useful as well. And so there's 40 of those, and most companies are pretty, pretty uh, poor at them. And they are actually linked to adaptability of an organization. Um so you've got one side, uh, the bottom layer, which is like considering the tech and where you should focus. And then you've got these doctrine, these principles, which is around how you should, you know, almost structure, organize yourself, how you should manage things. Now, mapping isn't just limited to single companies or individuals. You can do it at a nation state level as well. So when you start mapping out um, larger scale systems and economic systems, and I did a piece of work many, many years ago looking at China, USA, um, China has uh, some interesting uh, place. I mean, it, it, it's um, obviously an amazing country and some, some incredible companies um, with uh, quite, quite stunning organizational models coming out of China. Um, but at a, a national level, and uses very much a mixed economic model. So very much encouraging um, uh, the government acting as a venture capital firm at one end uh, to, to uh, use of uh, special economic zones to, to industrialize uh, existing components to, to the point of nationalization uh, of what is a utility. Now, this all, for me, stems back to Deng Xiaoping, and um, it doesn't matter if the cat is black or white as long as it catches mice. It, it's it's all about um, using what is pragmatic and practical and understanding the context and using appropriate economic tools and methods for that. Um, so that's one of the things that I think at a nation state, at a competition level, uh, we need to learn from. I suspect uh, this year, which it happens to be the 100th anniversary of the CCP, that China will also be uh, start its program to tackle uh, inequality. Uh, it's, it's been doing a program to tackle poverty, taking 850 million people out of poverty, um, but it will tackle the issue or start to tackle the issue of inequality. Um, and that's actually important for economic competition. Uh, unfortunately, in the West, we tend to be um, uh, very much... Uh, sort of one-size-fits-all methods. Um, uh, we have some interesting beliefs not not backed up by anything. In fact, the reverse is, is usually the case, uh, things like the trickle-down effect. Uh, so we suffer terribly from uh, inequality, and that actually impacts our ability as a nation to compete. And so then that takes us up another level, which is into the question of society. Because I said you can map out ethical values, and... Um, and if you if you map out uh, the beliefs of a of a nation, you'll find that just like science, just like physical things, they're built on many many different components which have evolved over time. And I use this to look at mapping out culture because one of the problems with culture is no one could quite explain it to me what culture was. And I started to look into the subject and. Um, uh, came across various quotations which pointed to the fact that anthropologists have spent a hundred years trying to define culture, and no one can agree quite what it is. Uh, and they're the experts in the field. And then I came across the work of Margaret Mead, uh, and fabulous work, by the way. And Margaret Mead talked about how language is is part of culture, and that creates a problem because if language is part of culture, then you won't be able to use language alone to model. Uh, culture, and that's uh, Gödel's incompleteness theorem. So what I did was start mapping it out. And of course, that meant I had to map out um, 
uh, ethical values and then start to map out all the other components, uh, things like uh, power, um, you know, symbolism, the uh, um, safety, uh, competition, um, a whole range of different structures. And it turned out that what was at the top of this map, the anchors of the map, uh, were concepts of me and we. Uh, so me is very, we're all, uh, uh, shall we say, partly me, partly we. Uh, so we're all about the self and we're all about the collective. And of course, there's a balance between the two. And um, one of the things that was very noticeable was the balance at uh, nation states, uh, the difference between that. So some some cultures are very much me focused and some cultures are much more we focused. And so the example would be China and Confucianism. Uh, and that seemed to have an impact in various different areas. And that's probably come to the fore with um, uh, the whole pandemic, uh, where we've um, those countries which tended to have a more Confucian type attitude seem to have uh, reacted in different ways uh, and, and potentially more successful um uh than other nations so that led to this whole discussion uh of uh you know should we not at a society level a identify what our core values are i mean really identify them and have that discussion about you know what is the balance of me and we have we have we actually got that right so i suppose those are the um the four things uh, i use maps in terms of looking at technology i use maps in terms of working out doctrine and how businesses should operate uh, i use maps for nation state competition and looking at different economic systems and i also use maps for looking at cultural systems and society itself well there was so much in this first uh, in the first answer but uh, you know I, I should have expected you know with the initial question that I that I raised uh, so first of all I mean a quick thought that I would like to change with you before my, maybe going deeper into some of the important aspects that we mentioned also in the preparation so, so it looks like you, you, you to me at least that your work has always been also focused on explaining how progress and uh, I would say innovation and evolution works in markets. No? And so, uh, for example, when you refer to the stages of evolution and the effects that competition has on markets, you know, driving componentization and you know, climbing value chains and so on, uh, um, it looks really, I would say, de- uh, to, to some extent, you know, techno-driven process of innovation that we are all used uh, to. No? So, so we look at technology, we look at how uh, technology and markets generate uh, this kind of uh, continuous process of technological innovation, componentization, and so on. Uh, on the other hand, that towards the end of, uh, of uh, your first answer, you know, you, you, you were um, looking into uh, more, uh, I would say, uh, socio-political or socio-technical decisions that, uh, to some extent, you know, define, for example, some political choices or uh, sometimes, you know, as we are seeing in China, to some extent, the subjugation of technology to the political will and power of the people, of the, of the in the case, or in general, of these uh, governments or bureaucracies or whatever. Uh, so I'm curious to know, from you if you have thoughts about how do these two things connect you know is culture this you know your work on culture uh, the point where these two aspects connect you know the the, the aspects between you know a uh, uh, self-defined idea of technological progress and our choices in terms of you know our choices in terms of politics or organizational politics and culture and choices personal ones so is these cultural aspects that really are the point where these two conversations on the, uh, I would say, political and the technological connect. So if I start with uh, the point of me, uh, me is about individuality, it's about agency, and it's about power. But now obviously power requires uh, power over something. So um, there's different forms of power, relationship power, social, uh, structuralizing, hierarchical power. And and that um, depends upon being a member or part of some collective. Now, when we talk about we, um, it's about us having control over our environment. Of course, that also depends upon uh, a collective. 
Now, the collective itself, I mean, you know, it's in competition with other collectives. Um, so critical to this is the, the concept of success and the success of our values. So we, we define, when we think about a collective, it has certain uh, beliefs and, uh, uh, you, know, you know, values, values and beliefs, the same thing. I mean, um, and we define success by the spread of our beliefs and our, our values. Uh, and that's, you know, um, connected to other things like uh, behavior, um, enablement systems, how we market, how we sell, propaganda, whatever it happens to be. So if you if you think about two systems in competition, I mean, the U.S., uh, I mean, a lot of the values of the U.S. Uh, or beliefs of the U.S., such as democracy, uh, are somewhat supported by its success economically. Um, and it then creates a problem if, uh, if another nation is more economically successful. It undermines the belief in, well, the, the ideas of those beliefs. So when you start looking at that success, of course, that requires competition with another collective, and that's linked to doctrine itself. So when I talk about the 40 university useful principles of doctrine, they're connected to how well you, know, you compete. If you're good at the doctrine, you understand users, the needs, you understand the landscape, as in you understand the value chain, how evolved components are, you can play the game better. And, of course, that's all linked to, to the landscape itself. And the landscape uh, is that mix of, um, uh, you know, practices, data, knowledge, technology, all these components evolving. So, yes, there is a direct link uh, from technology all the way through to uh, doctrine, all the way through competition, all the way through uh, uh, the values and beliefs of the system, all the way to the concept of me and we. And... Uh, there are many other components involved, but these are all interconnected uh, systems. Now, uh, you know, how divisible these systems are is a, is a completely different uh, question. I mean, landscapes, understanding your landscape also doesn't tell you what to do. All, it, all, all this is is a mechanism of, of looking at the environment. Um, and within these landscapes, you'll find all sorts of wonderful feedback loops, which can be positive and negative. So if your collective is being successful, it uh, helps spread your values and uh, encourages safety or the you know, belief uh, of those people within that collective that somehow they're safe against other, uh, other collectives. And of course, if, it, if it's going wrong, that becomes a negative cycle. Um, and our sense of belonging starts to reduce uh, in that collective. So it's as bizarre as it might might sound. I mean, you can our ability to effectively understand uh, the technology landscape and form the right sort of actions and build the right uh, sort of uh, uh, companies will <laughs> impact our sense of belonging and safety uh, within the collective. So, so these are yes, all interconnected. Now, when it comes to the political side, I mean, a lot of that is. Uh, to do with the balance between me and we. Um, and so it's, it's interesting, you know, China very much, uh, Confucian culture, um, so really strong focus uh, on the we. And that may also be why it is um, uh, quite uh, enabled, I suppose, uh, to use mixed methods in, in, in managing its economy. Whereas in the West, we tend to be much more focused on the me, individualism, liberalism, uh, which potentially may limit our choices. Uh, certainly in our choices of economic systems, we, we tend towards more of the um, uh, uh, let the free market um, run everything, um, which, you know, in certain areas of um, uh, as things evolve, there are certain times where you want the free market to run freely. Uh, so late custom early, uh, product stages. But when it becomes more commodity, utility, you want it regulated, government controlled, even nationalized. And uh, when you talk about the genesis of genuinely novel and new activities, you often want the uh, government acting as a, as a venture capital firm. Uh, companies tend to be good at applied research rather than core research. So, so all of these things are interconnected uh, with each other. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, I was uh, furiously chatting with Stina in the background, uh, sharing some ideas for for where to go next. And uh, I was um, uh, fascinated by this idea that you you presented that uh, success is success of our values. You know? So many times we discuss about, you know, for example, for one organization, what does it mean to thrive? What is the purpose, you know, to some extent? So I think this idea of success of our values, it's really Uh, clear in in explaining that and in the background uh, you know i was thinking about uh, this the seemingly uh, switch and evolution we are living these days you know from a, a globalized uh, globalization faster globalization perspective uh, which means essentially uniforming values uh, and so having an idea of success that is more i would say widespread and more common across the world uh, maybe between china and the us for example, and uh, this has been accelerating innovation fairly a lot you know, in the last, um, in the last uh, probably two decades, um, especially in, in the industries that were not subject to uh, strong regulations, you know, and you know, in the digital world, for example. Uh, on the other side, now that's in, that we are living through this um, so-called... Uh, Decoupling, no, this, uh, but in general, I mean, it's not just the decoupling of the US and, and uh, China, it's a matter of regionalization. No? What we are seeing, it's uh, economies apparently starting to re regionalize. Uh, we know, for example, on the podcast, we had uh, Nicola Collen that spoke about this idea that uh, we used to think about digital as a global thing, but in reality it's not. You know, it's much more regional than we thought, especially now. Uh, and that's also a point that uh, Ben Evans has been raising a lot lately. So so we see this regionalization and so to some extent a clash of values. You know? So I don't know to what extent, but at least to some extent a clash of value. And so maybe we can think about uh, to some extent a reduction of the rate of innovation. So my, my question would be, what if we look into markets and organizations from this point of view of a world where values are increasingly less uniform and much more uh, clashing? Uh, what does it mean for the, for the organization? So, for example, in our podcast, we have been discussing a lot uh, uh, how the priorities of organizing may uh, change from uh, efficiency to more resilience. You know? So, for example, embracing more distributed structures when maybe global players need to play and interplay with local, regional or even you know city city sides players like uh, collectives of uh, of people or, or even smaller businesses. So 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 in general, the question would be in this perspective, and if you agree with this perspective, uh, what do you see in terms of evolution of uh, the organizational model and the market model, and do you see connection with all these uh, thoughts that I just uh, wrapped up in a question? Yes, yes, I do. Um, so there's there's two different threads there. Uh, one is the issue of sovereignty. Uh, and one is um, the development of uh, principles and doctrine. So so values are, are, are beliefs. Uh, principles are these universally useful patterns, which uh, um, everybody really should follow. Um, and they start very simply with those, those ideas of um, focusing on the user, uh, focusing on user needs, um, Uh, knowing the details, having a bias towards data, challenging assumptions, and so forth. But where do they come from? And this is where we'll make, hopefully, all the connections. So one of the things that happens is as technology evolves, um, so you start off with, we'll talk about activities. So we start with Genesis, custom-built products, and commodity utility. As technology evolves, you often get co-evolution of practice. And so, you know, give a recent example, we'll go back to cloud, the shift from computers of product to computers of utility, which is cloud. And we had a shift of practice from those practices built with computers of product. So they were based upon the characteristics of computers of product, one of them being high mean time to recovery. So we had, uh, you know, disaster recovery tests, lots of capacity planning, M plus one. And it shifted to, to utility compute where we suddenly had another set of characteristics, including low NTTR, low mean time to recovery. So if you wanted a new server, you didn't have to wait months, you could have it in seconds. And so we started to do distributed systems designed for failure, chaos engines. Um, this is all around 2006, 2009. And, and, that, and that was lum all put into the whole term. 
DevOps. I mean, even things like continuous deployment. I mean, we couldn't do continuous deployment in the past when you're waiting three months for a server to turn up. So, so what you get is as technology evolves, you get this co-evolution of practice. And some of those practices are context specific, specific to an industry, um, but some of them are universally useful. And those ones end up in the doctrine table. Now, there's a whole bunch of technology that's currently evolving at the moment. Uh, and as a result of which, we're seeing uh, 43 different potential areas of change uh, that are going on. Uh, everything from you know reusability, resource management, uh, resilience is another area, reduction of waste is another area, radicalization, protectionism, uh, mobilization, uh, manipulation of uh, perception. There's a whole bunch, 43. And some of those will turn out to be universally useful. They'll end up in that doctrine table. Now, the success of an organization, often people think, oh, it's about technology. It's actually about the principles. I mean, if you took all the technology away from Amazon and gave it to somebody else, uh, give Amazon 10 to 15 years, they'd be back in the same position they are because they have a, a really good set of principles. And the same with hire. Um, for, for running their organization. And because of that, it makes them highly adaptable and it gives them high levels of awareness. I mean, uh, I love the, the book, uh, Reaching Cloud Velocity, uh, which uh, I think that's AWS's second ever book. Uh, several reasons. A, it's a great book. And secondly, it's got 17 pages of mapping in it and their, their use of models like ILC, et cetera, within, within their book. So having those principles in place and um, enables your organization to to um, adapt, uh, cope with uh, basically a constant change. And that leads all the way um, to things like cell-based structures and uh, models like Pioneer Settler Town Planner, which is a specific model of multiple attitudes in the organization. But of course, you can't do those more advanced things until you've done the basics of having challenging assumptions having a common language understanding user needs because you know because otherwise you're applying structures to environments you don't understand okay so what you've got is technology changes creates a change of practice some of those practices uh, turn out to be uh, universally useful and when we talk about a change of practice uh, they have a common meaning uh, for example devops and itl have a common meaning in terms of architectural type practice uh, but they are they're different uh, competencies and there's a uh, i just mentioned that also because there's some wonderful work by elizabeth shove on uh, uh, social practice theory which is always worth exploring now technology evolves it causes practice evolves some of those practices are universally useful uh, they go into doctrine how well you're good at doctrine depends upon uh, influences how adaptable your organization is and that organization or a collective could be a company it could be a church it could be a football club it, it could be a nation state itself and so if you think about nation states or any collective uh, that's where you know we define our collective by the values not the principles the values the beliefs that we have here here are the things that we believe in and there's like seven universally um, uh, beliefs that we know, know of, you know, respect for property, respect for law, I, they appear in all collectives and all cultures that we're aware of. But a lot of them are, um, you know, specific to, to or um, shall we say, there, there's quite a bit of variance in the, those beliefs, and some are more, well, shall we say, more localised. Uh, some of them, there are aspects of university universality um some of them are, are less evolved than others um, so there's only about seven which are really common and um uh through all collectives and of course you know we define success of the collective by how we spread our values and our beliefs and uh, so if our beliefs aren't spreading then we're not being very very successful and of course uh, the success of uh, any collective depends upon the principles as in the doctrine we follow as well so that those are interconnected and so this then leads me over into the whole area of sovereignty 
You see, if I map out something like the automotive industry, so we start with the user wants to get from A to B, and that requires a bunch of things, including uh, maybe potentially a car, and a car requires a bunch of other components, and in there may be information systems and AI, and AI requires simulation training systems. Well, the interesting thing is the beliefs of a collective are usually embedded in the training systems for the AI. Uh, so you can, when you map out the automotive industry, you can map out the, the the nation collective and its beliefs and connect the two together. So we often talk about ethics and AI. And it, it's interesting because you've got um, uh, Beijing AI principles and you've got the, uh, the US uh, AI principles uh, being developed, uh, ethical principles, in this case for AI. And so the question you always ask yourself is the trolley question i mean the car's coming along you can hit four people or hit one person who do you hit well if you're in a society which values uh, people the collective the we uh then uh, it's tough luck for the, the one person but what if the one person's super wealthy and the four people are unemployed well if you're in a society which values <laughs> or uh, you know the individual the me and maybe has a heavy connection to wealth maybe the the, the decision you make is different. Um, now, <laughs> this is a, this is where we get to the whole me versus we discussion. So what's this got to do with sovereignty? Well, when we understand physical sovereignty, we use a map uh, to understand the landscape. And it's from that understanding of the landscape is where we set our boundaries and which bits do we want to control, uh, etc. Um, when it comes to things like digital sovereignty, you can map out the digital space. Um, and it's a question of um, deciding which are the bits that we wish to control. Where are the boundaries that we actually wish to set? What do we want to protect? Unfortunately, uh, most discussions um, about digital sovereignty don't, don't use maps at all. They, they rely on stories. It's a bit like uh, trying to uh, uh, do physical sovereignty <laughs> with stories uh, without any understanding of maps and borders or anything else. So it's mostly, uh, to be honest, a lot of blah, 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 and uh, a lot of things like, oh, we've got to protect data and everything else, to which the obvious question is, you know, what? data why um uh, where is the boundary we're setting just people can't can't answer that question so um from my point of view you, you know this what your the connections it's so much easier to show this with a map uh, it, it's always interesting to try to do this purely verbally but um uh, the the connection between sovereignty and nation-state competition, what we want to control, um, that really needs us to understand the landscape to determine where the boundaries that we wish to place, what are the components that we wish to, uh, to own or at least express sovereignty over. And uh, in terms of um, uh, the collective, not only do we not understand the digital landscape that we're competing in, well, I'm talking about the West here generally. Um, we also tend to be quite poor at the doctrine, the basic principles by which which we operate. Um, and that doctrine, of course, is evolving all the time. Uh, so in, certainly in commercial companies, some are far behind. I mean, I, I find it quite amusing that people are talking about things like understanding users and user needs and understanding your value chain in in 2021 i mean really should have been doing that over a decade ago um so some are not only far behind they're getting further behind because that doctrine doesn't stand still just like the map the map and the components on the map evolve new practices appear as well so we're seeing this at an organization and uh, uh, at all levels of collectives so again it doesn't matter whether you're a church or a group or a, a nation state or an organization and so it, it's interesting to watch China because it's clearly has seems to have better understanding of the landscape. Um, some of the games that it plays in terms of understanding its supply chain, what, what it wants to protect, uh, indicate it has what we would call fairly high levels of situational awareness. Um, some of its companies clearly have good understanding of doctrine. In fact, some of the leading companies of the world in terms of uh, uh, organizational practice, you mentioned Hire. Uh, for me, that would be a classic example. Um, and in terms of technology, 
uh, the underlying technology. It's if you if you look at the plans, uh, China twenty twenty five and other of the plans, it's it's been making good economic bets based upon industrializing technology, and that that requires high levels of situational awareness, a bit like Amazon. Uh, and the whole ILC type of innovate, leverage, commoditize model requires strong understanding of the landscape you're operating in. Now, most of us are blind to this. We don't understand our landscape. We certainly don't understand the principles that are involved. Uh, we certainly don't understand sovereignty and how to actually do this. Um, and most of us rely just on stories. You know, let me try to to highlight a few points to for our listeners because uh, I think uh, this conversation was really awesome in terms of uh, resonating with some of the questions the conversation we had uh, so far so uh, you know you know w- one thing that I get from this and uh, you mentioned for example uh, social practice theory and uh, you know doctrine as becoming a universal uh, you know doctrine becoming be- being the, the set of universal useful patterns The, the question we were debating with Tina in the background, uh, it was, uh, you know, where this question is, is democracy outdated then? So so what I mean, let me explain what I mean. Uh, you know, for example, Ben Evans, as I said before, is talking about uh, uh, the next uh, S-curve being uh, the X-curve of uh, regulation. Uh, you know, we're not ex- we don't expect such a dramatic, uh, dramatic different technology coming up. It's really about... Uh, regulating as the internet pervades society and everything we do. And uh, we also had another conversation recently with Rita McGrath when, where we ended up actually agreeing that uh, it's going to be very much more, much more important, uh, the duality, the relationship between the policymakers, the regulators and the business sector, you know, um, uh, and, um, You know, it's it's really it looks like when you when you mention social practice theory and doctrine in the context of politics, um, and you criticize the use of stories, uh, uh, it's like you say you know you're advocating for um, policy making that is much more about socializing decisions through evidence or through analysis. Uh, versus uh, policy making that is much more story based and much less uh, grounded in uh, uh, you know insights. So, oh, fabulous question. So, one of the things um, I use maps for is what I call pre-mortem, post-mortem. So, to explain pre-mortem, what we do is we, we map out a space um, and use the map to look at what we should do, what we intend to do. And uh, then we go and do it. And then we do post-mortem analysis using the map. So, how did the map change? Um, and how did, did we succeed or not succeed? Um, um, That, that maps become not only a mechanism of communication, what we want to do, um, and, and challenge uh, people being able to question without challenging the person, challenging the map, but they also become a, a, a point of learning uh, about a, uh, a particular environment. So it, it's out of that use of maps uh, that many of the, the patterns have occurred. And some of those patterns are economic patterns. Uh, there's about 30 of those common economic patterns. Uh, uh, there's about, uh, these are like the rules of the game, uh, 40-odd, oh, it's more than that now, 40-odd bits of doctrine. Then there's context-specific gameplay, and you're into about 100 different forms of those, mm-hmm. um, which, which uh, most people are fairly uh, oblivious to. So when you say about learning from data, I absolutely uh, agree it's a good idea it's a bit like the military uh, you know you understand the battlefield and you, <laughs> you, you learn from the battlefield and your actions and your uh, opponent's actions and that's how you improve you know your strategy or the way you deal with future problems now we'll come to this whole issue of democracy and the end of democracy and all these sorts of ideas okay uh, democracy is a belief and uh, um, um Unfortunately, what we've had is a, a, a collection of beliefs which have been, for various parties' uh, self-interest, been bundled together. Uh, one of those is the economic system and uh, a particular form of the economic system and democracy. So you typically hear the, uh, oh, uh, you, you know, you can't have capitalism without democracy or you can't have democracy without capitalism and they're sort of tightly coupled together. Well, you know, this is this is 
uh, plainly not true. This is about as true as trickle-down effects. I mean, the uh, democratic system is uh, is a system of representation, and there's no reason why we cannot use mixed economic models and so more context-specific models uh, with a, a democratic system. But because we've tightly coupled those in certain areas, um, there is... Uh, there's become this belief that, you know, uh, in order for democracy to see, succeed, capitalism has to succeed. Well, actually, no, uh, capitalism doesn't have to succeed. We could have a, a more context-specific, refined model than just, just purely market. And at the same time, uh, we can quite happily have uh, uh, democracy in the way we think of uh, democracy. Part of this uh, problem is also linked to a misunderstanding of how economic systems tend to work. Um, so one of my favorite uh, examples of this, um, it's, it's Pascal's triangle, actually. So that's this triangle, that triangle, which if you remember you know, any any early math, starts off with a one, then a, the next line is one, one, then it's one, two, one. And it's, uh, it's all about... Um, uh, um, permutations um so for example uh if i toss a coin twice it might come up heads uh there's one head head there's two different varieties of head tails as in head tails tails head and there's one tail tail now if i throw a coin in the air and if it comes up heads i i double my wealth and if it comes up tails i i i only have 60 percent, so i lose 40 percent of my wealth and you have four people throw it then one person's going to go heads heads so they're going to end up with four times the wealth two people are going to go a variation of heads tails so they end up with uh 0.6 uh, 1.2 times their wealth and one unlucky person will end up with 0.36 of their wealth and if you add those all up, it's just that's um, 6.76 roughly divided by 4, 1.6. And what it means is people started off with $1 each, $4. They've ended up in total with 6.76 right off the top of my head, uh, which is on, on average we've gone from $1 to $1.5. But the average person, if you look at the four people, well, three of them are now below the average wealth, and one of them, has got a lot of wealth. And this is a power law. And if you do it uh, ranges of 63 million, what you get is a massively unequal system where a few people are incredibly wealthy and, and most people are below the average. And some people are extremely, a lot of people are extremely poor. Uh, and to create that sort of inequality, you just need one thing, uh, which is luck. Uh, you can make it even worse with things like inheritance and you can make it worse with uh, return on capital expenditure being proportional capital. So um, what I mean by that is the more capital have, the better return you get for every dollar. And so what's interesting is when you look at power law distributions and you add those, those other factors, they sort of mimic uh, what goes on reality. Now, when we look at things like hard work and talent, which are more Gaussian distributions, they don't mimic. Uh, reality itself. And, and so the brutal honesty is we run around telling everybody we live in a meritocracy and hard work and talent really matter. They're negligible uh, compared to luck, inheritance and return on capital investment, uh, which is why we have an incredibly unequal system with a lot of poor social mobility. Now at a national state, at national level of competition, uh, that creates a problem, and that problem is is if the the, the people running your system are, are not those defined by uh, talent and hard work, but are those defined by by luck, uh, return on capital investment being proportional to capital, i.e., how much money you begin with an inheritance, um, we don't necessarily end up with the best people in charge. Um, so. <laughs> um, but we like to tell people it's a meritocracy or certainly people in charge like to tell people they're a meritocracy because if you've got several billion, um, you don't want to know that it's not to do with your work and work and uh, hard work and uh, talent. You like to think it is. Can't stand it if t somebody tells you it's mostly luck, inheritance and return on capital investment. Um, so we have this wonderful situation where we've tied up democracy with our economic system. We, we tell each other myths about how our uh, economic system is based on meritocracy, which quite clearly it 
plainly it isn't. Um, and, and so now we're facing a, a culture which is becoming more economically successful. It is, um, though it's been focused on reducing poverty, it will. Uh, it's already, President Xi has already signaled it's going to attack the issue of inequality. Um, so, so we end up with this wonderful system where by their economic system, once they uh, start to tackle inequality, may not only be uh, far ahead, but accelerating and a much more equal system. Um, to which we say, well, obviously the problem is democracy. Uh, we've got to get rid of that and uh, be more, you know, something else. <laughs> but the problem isn't democracy. The problem is is um, the economic system, um, lack of con- um, uh, our tendency to one size fits all, rather than uh, uh, more contextual approaches. Uh, government as a venture capital, use of nationalisation where necessary, use of free market as necessary. Um, and uh, tackling the issues of inequality um, because um, the meritocracy is not what we exist in. So that's what we should do. Tackle the inequality, tackle the uh, return on capital investment, tackle the uh, uh, the issue of luck, push the system towards the system, and you'll have to do this with things like redistribution, where, adapt, where talent and hard work are the primary drivers of success. So that's where you'd have to start and then you'd also have to tackle this issue of one size fits all um, which means you need to move to a more mixed economic model knowing when to act as a venture capitalist when government should act uh, in nationalization when the market should run free and all do both of those things you've got to have a pretty decent understanding of the the landscape um, we don't have any of that so i'm sure we're just going to blame democracy um, but the problem isn't democracy Wow, <laughs> super interesting. Let's see if I can uh, turn this question the way I, I wanted to. Um, so you're talking a lot about, uh, well, throughout the conversation about these collectives. So I, I actually have like two two questions, I think. Uh, one thing is uh, the scale of these uh, collectives. Um, you know, we, we range the conversation from uh, businesses to nation states, but I, I'd love to hear more how you, you know, how do you see the scalarity of collectives as the entities who uh, organize activities in, you know, we can say in an economic space, for instance. Um, and the second question is, so we, as you might know, we, um, uh, we just recently released a new white paper uh, on platform ecosystem thinking. And in, in that we have a broad hypothesis, let's say that uh, in the current uh, context of, where we see a lot of this sort of fragmentation uh, in digital markets and so on, that this would drive a push essentially also to micro-entrepreneurship. Uh, and especially uh, we're drawing out these broad lines on uh, something that is called, the, we refer to as the economy of essentials. So where citizens essentially come together and form new sort of collectives, if we use these terms, uh, to provide for themselves Uh, basic uh, sort of services that have become, let's say, commoditized and uh, they are able to do so with low transaction costs. So this is something that, you know, we um, we have mentioned and it would be interesting to see if we can tie this to the picture that you just um, that you just formed. If essentially are we going to more less of imposed principles <laughs> from the top and stories Uh, towards something much more self-organized. Interesting. So one of the, um, if I look at the university, uh, the, my, my, my doctrine table, which is that list of uh, uh, universally useful principles, not context-specific uh, ones, which have come out of mapping. I mean, you'll find in the later phases of that doctrine table, and this stuff can all be found online, um, you know, think small teams. Uh, and later one is uh, there's no single culture. And a later one is designed for constant evolution. So use of cell-based structures. Um, so if you take a system and you break it down into ever smaller components, um, those components ideally provided uh, you know, by, by smaller teams. Now, when we say smaller teams, um, 
depends on what specifically you mean. Um, when we talk about the genesis of novel and new activities, I mean, you can be talking to teams of two or three uh, once, you, once you're talking about some things which are uh, more evolved. It could be, you know, Amazon famously uses the two pizza model. Of course, things which eventually end up as utility-like structures, um, even though it may be a small component, um, you can sometimes have slightly larger teams than that. So the idea that we will break down into smaller components, well, you're seeing that anyway with companies like Amazon, with companies like Hire as well. But they're, they're, you know, this is a question of distribution of uh, production and power. This also features in this whole sort of uh, discussion about hybrid cloud. One of the things I'd expect to see is, um, because everybody talks about, well, the future is going to be everybody, you know, much more hybrid cloud, maybe smaller providers, etc. Well, not necessarily. The, the cloud may well distribute. It may be Amazon everywhere. It may be Alibaba everywhere. And what, what you've got is uh, distribution of provision, but um, centralization of power over that system. And it's the same with the same thing with uh, production in terms of distribution of production into ever smaller teams, um, but again centralization of power, as in all these teams work for Amazon or all these teams work for uh, um, Alibaba or Hire or whoever we're talking about. So I do understand the ideas. I mean, certainly once you have component services. Uh, the more component services, more utility-like services you have, it's, it becomes far easier for people to build uh, novel and new things on it. But at the same time, uh, that's part of uh, the whole IOC model, which I better explain. As things industrialize to a utility, you provide it as a service, people build things on top. And like computers, a utility, people might go and build, I don't know, kit internet, um, or, I don't know, some other ridiculous service, or some people might be on big data on it. And if you provide a utility service, you can mine the metadata, the consumption of your API, to determine what's becoming successful. And so you leverage the entire ecosystem to spot future patterns, which you then commoditize to new, new component services, and everybody cheers, except for the people you've just uh, industrialized who complain you've eaten their business model. And the net effect of this, however, is the company at the heart of this gains from the benefits of efficiency, providing economies of scale, providing utility services. It gains from apparent rates of innovation because of everybody building on top, creating new services, and gains uh, in benefits of um, customer focus because mining metadata to spot the patterns that are becoming useful gives that to everyone. So that company simultaneously increases in rates of innovation, customer focus and efficiency does all three simultaneously and that will grow as the ecosystem grows so what you're getting there is centralized power um, but of course the provision of it may be a whole bunch of small cells so you've got decentralized production it's not one big you know department of ten thousand people it's lots of small teams building this stuff and you may also get distribution of provision so you set up in multiple different regions maybe with different teams as well so you, you get layers of distribution uh, and layers of centralization so do i expect to see lots of small teams building things ever more quickly and ever more interestingly on on these more utility like services yes and then I expect that to be copied or to be acquired uh, ever more rapidly, um, which then leads you to the question of, well, you know, what is the nation state perspective and role in this? Well, Alibaba, I mean, uh, you know, China is going through the process of nationalizing it because it's now a more core common utility like service to others and and obviously from a nation state perspective if you if you believe in the if your focus is on the use of mixed economic models and what's appropriate where you would tend towards high regulation of or or nationalization of those things which are a core utility at simultaneously at the same time as while encouraging investment and venture capital as a government for the novel and new so Will we see small teams building new things? Yes. Uh, will I suspect they will be acquired or copied more quickly? 
Yes. Uh, and um, do I expect to see uh, more centralization of power? Yes. And to which then people often argue, say, well, what we want to do is we want to break up companies like Amazon. And that's great as long as you control China, because if China doesn't return the favor with Alibaba and there is no reason to believe it will, then they will gain the benefits of uh, innovation, customer focus, efficiency, all proportional to the ecosystem. So they will accelerate ahead and we will just get further behind. So that's the space you're in. That's resonating with... Uh... The work that recently we have been debating uh, uh, with Sanjit Chudari on, uh, um, you know, states as a platform and also the, the work that the strategy that some nations like China, for example, are, are using to uh, when, when they develop these kind of infrastructures as commodities, to some extent also exert a certain cultural influence. So I think this all resonates together. You know, this conversation in general was really much Uh, really, you know, confirming and, and double-clicking again on to some of the questions that we have been touching upon in the last in the last uh, year. So, Stina, maybe you want to ask a final question before we move on? Well, maybe it's uh, it could be good as a, a sort of wrapping up to talk about what do you think is important for people listening to our podcast who are interested in platform ecosystem and the, the, their evolution. What is important to keep in mind in this current moving and looking looking forward in this space? I absolutely love the whole sort of focus on building platforms, the whole focus on using ecosystems. But I, you know, a word of warning, a word of caution. It's really important to understand your landscape before you embark on this. First of all, there are different forms of ecosystems. One is more the ILC model where you're providing services and getting others to build. One is all the way to the other end, which is more than just the general alliance. But if you're building something which is genuinely novel and new, uh, the genesis of something, uh, the last thing you want to do is, is start exposing that as an API because it limits your ability to change the thing. Uh, and so it reduces your rate of innovation. If you look at somebody like Amazon or you look at China, for example, China concentrates a lot, uh, and so does Amazon, on industrializing pre-existing activities, so shifting them for product to utility. And that's where particular ecosystem models like ILC all make sense. So I suppose my, my, my first word and uh, caution would be um, understand your landscape um, before... Make, uh, landscapes won't tell you what to do, but yeah, they'll help. Um, you should be able to have a discussion. Uh, you have to apply thought to it. But um, understand your landscape before making a decision. I am, I'm sure there's a lot of people who've run, run out there and you know open source things or uh, without truly understanding what they're doing or trying to build ecosystems and spaces where or the wrong sort of ecosystem in the wrong space because they simply didn't understand their landscape. So that's my first thing uh, is understand your landscape. My second thing is it doesn't matter what collective you are, an individual all the way up to a nation state. If you want to be able to communicate in space without the political games, if you want to be able to challenge without the political games, if you want a mechanism of learning, then you too also need to understand your landscape. That's a great uh, way to resonate and close also this conversation because, uh, you know, we used to say always that uh, uh, platform thinking, your systems thinking needs to be outside in. It really needs to be about what they are trying to do with they, I mean, the ecosystem players, uh, more than what you think about. And uh, I think, you know, when you say you need to understand your landscape first, it's really you know, about setting up your structures and so that you can then use your ecosystem as a future sensing engine, as you said. But right? if you don't understand the landscape first, you're never going to sense the future. No, that's, that's a key point. So, Simon, I mean, the conversation was crazy. I really, I need to re-listen to that uh, maybe a couple of times before <laughs> writing the notes. But first of all, I would like to ask you, uh, if uh, uh, people want to look more into your work, uh, where they should uh, look into, apart from your amazing Twitter uh, uh, handle? <laughs> Medium.com forward slash Wardley Maps. You'll find there's about 600 pages of a book that's on there. List.wardleymaps.com which is uh, a awesome list which connects to all sorts of uh, different places where there's stuff about Wardley Maps. Just Google search Wardley Maps, you'll find lots. And then there's lots of books out there. Ducati, 
has published a, a pretty large book on Wardley mapping, the knowledge part one. It's quite a thick tome. Uh, Art of Strategy, uh, which has uh, lots of mapping concepts within there. Uh, that's by Eric. Uh, you've got uh, Reaching Cloud Velocity, uh, that's AWS. Uh, you've even got things like From Intention to Action, A Plan for Digitalization. That's Puerto Rico, Giancarlo. Uh, that's uh, a lot of mapping in there, or lots of chunks of mapping in there. So you, you'll find it in all sorts of places. And uh, there's even people teaching it at Peking, Moscow Institute of Technology, uh, uh, Harvard Kennedy, David Gray's teaching up there, uh, Exeter. So it's spreading. So where do you find more? Just search for Wardley Mapping Online. I'm sure you'll find a load of resources. Right, and I think this is this is a, a you know a witness of your heritage uh, that is so wide. You know, I mean, the the also the Map Camp community people can also look up the videos online. So I think I, I, I'm recognizing that your work on mapping was was really foundational to many many strategies and and researchers and and business owners and entrepreneurs worldwide. So thanks very much, uh, Simon. It was amazing. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Absolute delight. And uh, it's always difficult to do this just with words. I have this desperate need to, to show a map. But <laughs> Right, right, right. And I think uh, Stina will help me with figuring out uh, all the pictures that we need to put into these notes. That, that, would be, that would be great. Stina, do you want to say something more? No, I just uh, echoed it. Thank you. And uh, yeah, I think this is great that the practice is growing and we'll keep checking out for new updates that we can draw benefit from. I must admit, it, it's wonderful to see it spread because it's all Creative Commons. I mean, the only things I will mention is all maps are imperfect. They're by the, by the nature of being a map, it has to be a perfect representation of a space. I mean, even geographic maps, in order to be a perfect map of France, you'd have to be one-to-one -one scale, which means you'd have to be the size of France as a map. So <laughs> all maps are imperfect. And secondly, they're all models, so they are all wrong. Uh, but despite being imperfect and wrong, uh, maps tend to be, um, people find them quite useful, and particularly for communication, learning, and challenge. And uh, hopefully one day someone will come up with a better map. Right, I totally echo this. So our listeners, please, first of all, map, then uh, do more Creative Commons work, and uh, uh, catch up soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Boundless Conversation podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media, review our show on any major distribution platform, and don't forget to subscribe for new episode releases. Stay tuned on www.platformdesigntoolkit.com for our latest news and updates. There, you can also find our free design tools, opportunities to learn how to use them, or connect directly with us to use our help in designing your platform and ecosystem strategies in these turbulent times. We also want to thank Valtamobilia Leo Sound for the ad hoc music. Mm -hmm.